you've got to get the cost of acquisition of students low enough, right? That you can get the price point of the programs low enough that the return on investment is clear for the individual. And if you don't make that equation work, then there, there, there isn't a real viable market for expanding into other forms. What's up, everybody? My name is Ish, and I'm the founder of Virtually. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss the future of higher education, including online trade schools, boot camps, ISAs, and so much more. Today's conversation is with Michael B. Horn, a thought leader in the future of education space. We chat about the unbundling of higher education, the existential threat that grad schools face, and whether college curriculums can stay relevant to industry needs. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, my name is Ish, founder and CEO of Virtually, and I'm joined today by Michael B. Horn, author on the future of education, latest book is Choosing College. He's also senior strategist at Guild. Michael, so great to have you here today. Would you be able to introduce yourselves for the few people who might not already know you? Well, it's kind of you to say, and it's, it's, it's nice to be here, Ish. I'm, I'm excited to be on the, on the podcast and talking to you today. Uh, yeah, as you said, Michael Horn, I uh, live in, in Massachusetts these days, uh, write a lot about the future of education, got my start founding the Clayton Christensen Institute with Clay Christensen and writing a book called Disrupting Class, and then uh, have gotten the opportunity to be part of a number of education entrepreneurial uh, ventures as well along the way, which has been a heck of a lot of fun. Awesome. And, and Michael, you're no stranger to podcasts. You run uh, one of your own called Future You, which I've been a long time admirer of. Could you tell us about Future You a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. Future You is a fun project that uh, Jeff Salingo, the former editor-in-chief of the Chronicle for uh, Higher Education and an author of uh, best-selling books on, on his end, he and I uh, put together, gosh, we're in season four now. Uh, so we've been going for a few years. Uh, we basically birthed it out of this session we did at a university in Nebraska, where the two of us got on stage and for three hours, we just interviewed each other, riffing back and forth on different topics. And afterwards we were like, that was pretty seamless. And it was also pretty fun. Let's start a podcast. So we, you know, we have a guest on each uh, episode and then in the back half, we get to analyze and break down uh, what that guest said. Obviously the last year has been dominated by COVID-19 uh, stories and its impact on the now and future of higher education. And so uh, I think we did more episodes than usual last year. It was a bit of a frantic pace, but it, it was, it was fascinating. We learned a ton uh, from interviewing, you know, everything from everyone from presidents of universities to communication specialists uh, to to uh, uh, faculty members who are sort of dealing and trying to cope with these changes in higher ed right now. Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody here is a longtime admirer of this podcast, Reshaping Education, you're you're no longer you're absolutely going to be a fan of Future You. It's one of my all time favorite well, podcasts. You. So definitely go check that out. Uh, and uh, it's it's interesting, Michael, because you guys talk a lot about higher ed, and it, you know a lot of the kind of changes that are going happening there. Reshaping Education, our podcast, really focuses on alternative education and kind of the movements that are happening yep. there. So I'm excited to to bridge the gap today and uh, really I like dive into the nitty gritty. Uh, and uh, before we get to that juicy concept, I really love to get a kind of an introduction into how people made their way into kind of higher education and, you know, where your excitement for the space really comes. Are you able to talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're still in my question that we use on Future You, right? We ask every guest, uh, how do they get their start in this uh, crazy field, uh, whether it's higher ed or alternative education. So in, in, in my case, I had a public policy and writing background, and uh, I was running away from it when I went to business school, if I'm being honest. Uh, I wanted to get out of that world uh, and get on the business side of, of uh, things. And while at business school, I took Clay Christensen's class, Father of Disruptive Innovation Theory. And he literally, at the end of class one day, said, I have this opportunity to co-author a book where we're going to apply my ideas uh, to improving public schools. Uh, if you're interested in co-authoring, stop by. And, you know, his class and his ideas more broadly had just totally changed the way I saw the world. And I stopped by and, and frankly, not to write the book, but at the very end, I sort of said, I think I have a background that might be really useful to you. Did, did you actually mean co-author? And he said, yes. And so we dove into that with no expectation of what it would become or anything. And, and, uh, you know, he said it would take one year to write the book. It took two. And, uh, we founded this Institute together and it just changed my life. I mean, my life's mission every day I wake up, I think about how do we help every single individual around the globe, uh, build their passions and fulfill their human potential and disrupting class started at the K-12 level. Uh, but, you know, from my perspective, these are learning challenges throughout. And so whether that learning occurs in an institution of higher education, where there's plenty of disruption from alternative education, which is a, a big passion and interest of mine, and frankly works better with the theories because it's more of a marketplace than K-12, uh, or if it's K-12 schools, or frankly, it's like the gym, you know, the CrossFit gym where you work out and you get an education that sparks you, that changes your life in some other part of your trajectory and allows you to fulfill your potential. All of that to me is fair game in this conversation. And so I'm deeply passionate about how do we create alternative forms that give people the choices that they need to be able to take the steps on their journey to fulfill their potential. Yeah, that's that's awesome, Michael. And and COVID has been a huge theme that we've been talking about. Uh, it a lot of well, one quote that I've I heard that I absolutely love, which is that uh, Sometimes nothing happens for decades and then decades happens for weeks. And, and we're seeing that in, in education is, is COVID as, as much of a tragedy as, as it is, uh, is creating a lot of innovation and a lot of change. And, and I'm really curious from your perspective as somebody who spent so much time with higher ed, what are the changes that you're most excited about? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I think part of it has, depends on your view about what do we think is actually going to stick after this is over, right? Um, you hear so many people say right now, things will never go back to normal. And I'm just not quite sure what that means or what they're basing it on. Uh, but I guess one thing that I'm truly excited about is that we've seen the spike in interest in short form learning credentials go up 70% uh, in, in this pandemic. And in, in Guild's education data, it's actually a 150% increase in interest in certificates and trades. Uh, that is tremendous from my perspective. And it's a part of the market where, as you know, and your listeners know, has been booming in terms of the supply side. And to see the demand side of students seeing those opportunities and opting for them, I think is truly transformational and game-changing in the long run. Because 
it, it, what we're hearing from students is that they're looking for value, right? They're not looking for the traditional degree for its own sake, which is what you see in, in ordinary times and what we've seen in past recessions is enrollment in traditional higher ed spikes. That's not what's happened in this moment. And so from my perspective, we see individuals going to disruptive offerings, lower costs, more affordable, more flexible, more convenient. And I think that'll drive a larger transformation in what we think of as higher education or, or post-secondary education or learning, uh, period. And so from my perspective, I think that's what I'm most excited about. And frankly, the disruptors in higher ed are doing really well too. Like Southern New Hampshire and Western Governors University, their enrollments are up as well. And yet across the sector, we see that enrollments are down. And, and uh, I, I kind of personally think this is actually a real positive uh, from all this because I think it's going to create a lot more viable pathways uh, for learners and, you know, businesses that in these times would typically double down on requiring bachelor's degrees. If they don't do that and they open up to different pathways that are more student centered, I think that's a wonderful thing as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I, and, and what we've kind of been seeing is that like, you know, in, in an era like today, uh, I think unemployment is definitely something that's top of mind. Like we at at some point in this year, we had 51 million Americans who filed for unemployment, and it seems like you know if you're one of these individuals, you can't possibly imagine spending four years going back to school, learning curriculum that might be not so relevant to maybe land a job. Uh, you need something a really quick, easy way to retrain, and that's where these kind of alternative education programs really start to make sense. And it's something that I don't really think we had the last time we had a recession. It's a lot more established of an industry now. I think really uh, around 2011, 2012, we kind of had this like coding revolution explosion. But it really just, uh, these kind of these boot camps, career accelerators, they really just stuck around tech. Uh, And it kind of makes sense. The economics were really good. You could double or triple your salary. And we haven't seen them too much go beyond that. I mean, what are your thoughts about, you know, boot camps and accelerators? Do you feel like uh, they're, you know, they have a potential to disrupt higher ed? And, and if so, why, why have they stayed primarily with kind of tech careers? And do you think they'll expand? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and I think it, it's, it's a complicated answer and sort of uh, no crystal ball in it. I think the potential exists, but, but you've, you've nailed it right, which is ultimately you've got to get the cost of acquisition of students low enough, right? That you can get the price point of the programs low enough that the return on investment is clear for the individual. And if you don't make that equation work, then there, there, there isn't a real viable market for expanding into other forms. So technical talent uh, or technical skills works really well for, I think, a few reasons. One, you mentioned the ROI is clearly there in terms of the expansion of, of, of salaries, but also, frankly, the uh, expansion in the needed in, in the number of jobs that need those skills is a significant part of, of what's driving that. And I think what disrupts higher ed in that part of the equation is that, uh, you know, those skills become more and more pieces of the broader economy that eats into, if you will, higher ed's market share. The other thing that, uh, technical skills has as, as, it, as its advantage is that it's easier to assess what we're looking for. And if someone can actually do what we're asking, like the competencies at the heart of, of, of the technical talent, like there's more agreement over uh, someone who knows HTML programming should be able to do X, Y, and Z and build a site like this. And you can build a portfolio of projects that actually showcase that. And so I can assess it. 
right? And so as a result, then as an employer, I can create a marketplace out of that where I don't have to just say, oh, do you have a certificate in this or a degree in that? As like a very loose proxy that's very imprecise, I can actually drive its skills. The more you get out of technical fields, the less agreement or clarity there is around how to assess these skills. And so uh, first employers, if I'm being honest, I think suck at knowing <laughs> what uh, skills lie at the heart of really good employees in a lot of roles. Like, and, and the fluffier, if you will, the field gets, the harder it is to quantify and make it uh, in a way that's easy to assess. And so I think the more we go out in that way, the more it favors uh, sort of this more holistic, comprehensive education, if you will, that higher ed has traditionally been good at providing. And even still, I think it favors though lower cost providers outside of the elite exclusive ones um, uh, that, that I still think will hollow out a lot of that middle part of the market. But I do think you start, you're starting to see the boot camps and these alternative forms of education start to move into sales or healthcare or realms like that, sort of financial services. Other places that are slightly easier to quantify. You can get a better grasp over, did they learn those skills? There's a clear career path on the other side in a market uh, such that I, I think we see the creeping of these programs more and more into what we would consider higher ed. And the more they can do that, the more the danger, if you will, for traditional higher ed uh, becomes. But I think it'll take time. Like, I don't think we're going to quantify everything people need to know such that we can assess it in ways that totally blow out the degree. And I also think we're going to need to have boot camps and others be able to offer ongoing programs that that can stitch together a holistic education. Because the, the you know the biggest criticism of boot camps, as you know, uh, is they're really good at teaching foundational uh, skills to get that first job, but they're not good at the theory piece. They're not good at teaching you to frame problems like a computer scientist say, or, 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 you know, think critically, right. In the ways that you would need to, as you move up the stack, so to speak in your career. And, um, I think the easy way to do that is if you view this as a, as opposed to sort of a integrated offering that college offers, it's modular, right? And so we get you your entry level, and then we're going to piece together something. Maybe it's from higher ed, maybe it's from us as a boot camp, maybe it's from another provider that is going to start to give you your theory basis. And then we're going to, you know, put in another stack, and you can keep sort of adding those on, such that the sum of the parts uh, is sounds is, a lot like is, bundling. Uh, quite helpful. Yeah, well, it's it's basically it's unbundling and snapping it together, right? I think of it in in many ways. It's like. Dell is to uh, Apple computer, right? Like Apple is the integrated, we do everything. Uh, I mean, Steve Jobs, right? Like vertical integration was his religion. That works really well when people don't know what they want out of something. They don't know how to verify that they got something out of it. Um, and the, the, uh, the emphasis isn't on price and, and customization. But when those three things change, Right, we know what we want. We know we can verify that we got what we what we specified, and uh, we want affordable customization. Then modular unbundling becomes really important. But they need to be able to stack together in understood ways, and that's what enables you know a Dell personal computer back in the day to be able to say, oh, you want how much memory? You want what kind of drive? You want uh, what uh, speed processor? You want what kind of monitor? Oh, we can just connect those parts. They have easy interfaces ship it out. Right. And so it's, 
to, to me, there's got to always be someone that's taking the components and helping you assemble them, even as you unbundle them. Um, but there's got to be clear interfaces for those components to fit together. Yeah, totally. And the, so many great insights there. Uh, a place where I maybe want to start is going back to how you're talking about is that like these programs are finally looking to expand beyond just technology jobs. And I, I do have a theory for this. I, I like, you know, I was talking about is like with tech jobs, it, it really does seem like you can double or triple uh, your your income. But right now, uh, people aren't looking to double or triple their income. I think I think COVID sure. has created this very specific scenario where people are just looking for uh, employment. And now it, these programs make a lot more sense because they, in a very lean way, allow you to learn from experts in, in months, not years for a fraction of the cost and, and incredibly relevant skills too. Uh, and, and so we are seeing it kind of expand and, and I'm a big champion for this space. Uh, and people come to me all the time and ask like, oh, boot camps are the best. Aren't they going to just replace college and everything? And I'm like, well, I, I'm not naive. I know that uh, college offers so much more specifically undergrad, you know, uh, and we'll talk about like the mm -hmm. un unbundling of college and what that means to you in a sec. But uh, it, it really does seem that like, at least to me, that the bigger existential threat for universities is grad school, where it seems yeah, like totally a, a lot of like where, where, you know, people come to college or undergrad for is that community, right? Is that social experience? Whereas when they come to grad school, it's feel they, the education is such a bigger component than the community piece. And if, if, if that's exactly what you're looking for, now uh, a boot camp is a head-to-head -head comparison. So how do you think about that? I totally agree. Look, the, the, the disruption that boot camps have done to this point has been a master's degree programs, not a bachelor's degree programs. That's 100% that's accurate. And frankly, I think that's why it's actually very threatening to, to higher ed, which is because they've started so many professional programs to subsidize money-losing undergrad programs. And so if the bottom falls out of a lot of these, all, you know, these grad programs that have basically been cash cows for the institutions, that's where you're going to see the soft spot really hit for institutions in the long run. That That's why I think it's a threat for disruption more broadly speaking. Um, but I totally agree with the point uh, that, that, that you're raising there. I think the undergrad piece is, um, it's just, it's very nuanced. Like I don't see disruption happening in the, you know, top 5% of the market, the, the 200 institutions, if you will, that uh, uh, are, are selective, they're, they're re relatively selective. They, you know, um, it, it, it is that integrated uh, je ne sais quoi, like I don't know what makes it special experience, but it is special because you're all together residential, right? You have that uh, American higher ed experience. I, I don't think that'll get disrupted uh, anytime soon. It might get commoditized by players like Minerva Institute, but I don't think it gets disrupted. Um, uh, but I think that big middle of, of higher ed and, and a lot of those institutions that are fewer than a thousand, they're, they're in a different place in, in, in my view. And I, I think it is easier to disrupt uh, that, uh, particularly if the narrative change is longer run, which is that there are other ways uh, to build your skill sets. And some of us, like we go to college for the reasons that you outlined, but more because it's just like, it's the next logical step that we've been promised in the American dream uh, in many cases, or, 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 you know, th this is what you do. Right. 
And for a lot of individuals, that's not the circumstance that they're in. And so running to a certificate with a short form program and then stacking that into a more comprehensive bachelor's degree program later might be a better sequence uh, for those individuals. And I, I think that's part of the uh, other piece of this that we're going to have to move beyond is sort of getting between this binary either or uh, uh, speech about some of the uh, credential piece of it to seeing this as like a continuum where people are going to start in different parts of the continuum and, and that's okay. The, the, the big piece is we got to create a system that allows you to uh, move in line with what you want at, at that stage of your life and career. Yeah, totally. And, and I, I see again, themes of kind of unbundling here, which, you know, the way that I, I look at uh, unbundling university, I have these kind of three C's, which is it's, it's the community, the credentialing and the curriculum. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, you, with the, Especially from the grad piece, it seems like the community piece, it's, it's important. I think community is actually quite important, uh, but it, it seems less relevant than it does at an undergrad level. Uh, and then if you're talking about this piece of where kind of credentialing becomes less important to employers, then, hey, that's been kind of unbundled too. And now you're just left with curriculum. And when you kind of compare curriculum for like grad schools and generally just universities, one, one thing we're seeing is because of the Internet, industries are evolving so fast. Uh, yes, and, and universities evolving- because they're, yeah. Yeah, and curriculum seem to be like roughly the same. And 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 one thing I'm really curious about is like, do you feel like colleges will be able to keep up? Will will the college curriculum be relevant? And and a reason why this might be important is because I think Ryan Craig talks about this, you know, employment imperative and how students when they uh, when they enroll in universities, I mean, the number one thing they're looking for is job training. And if if you know if the curriculum that they're being taught doesn't really translate to a knowledge that's relevant in industry, uh, our college is going to be del- able to deliver on this promise. Yeah, well, l- l- let's start in the tech talent piece of this or the tech skills part of this equation. And the answer is no, it's really hard for colleges to keep up. And part of that is because of the way curriculum and courses are created uh, in institutions, but even more to the point, programs uh, are created. And these are big and faculty senates uh, around what counts and what do you need. And uh, it's often based on the research that faculty members are doing, which by its nature is backward looking, right? Like you do the research, you publish, and then you're able to build courses out of it. Well, in the tech field, like that's like three years minimum. And, you know, the state of the set of problems and technology and language like have already passed you by, right? So it's just too slow in terms of the revs. And then we haven't even taken into account state authorization processes on new programs that you launch or accreditation and and, uh, their processes. And so all of these factors create a curriculum that is designed to lag changes. And that works great when the curriculum is, or, or the content changes, if you will, in the workforce are slow moving. When that's not the case, it's a problem. Um, And so for, I think, again, the more durable, timeless skills that we want to learn, universities can still be great places for those things. But in the skills that are rapidly changing in the knowledge workforce, they're not going to be able to keep uh, uh, track. And, And all of the things that traditional higher ed looks at boot camps and says, that's a, that's a bug, that's a detriment. Uh, they're actually features uh, in terms of oh you don't have PhD faculty members you have you have instructors who work in industry yeah that's exactly right that's 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 by design right and so uh, a a lot of these uh, a lot of these things that in one circumstance look like detractors in another circumstance I think are the features that make it very that that will make it very hard for universities to compete now 
what can they do against that? I think partnership is is a big piece of this, right? In the future, it's it's uh, at Entangled, where I where you know we were acquired by Guild Education, but we uh, created a company called Pathstream, uh, which you, you may be familiar with, uh, which um, basically partners with companies like Facebook, Salesforce, Tableau uh, to take their various uh, certificates and, and build courseware out of them. And then it offers them directly to students, but it also offers them in partnership and through universities. So you can get a certificate in Facebook digital marketing, but also get college credit uh, toward a degree, which has value on both ends. And so, you know, that's a way for a university to stay up to date, but it's not going to be the one that's actually creating that curriculum. They're going to have to be willing and figure out ways uh, to outsource some of that function, which historically has not only been uncomfortable, in some cases, accreditors have said you're not allowed to do it. And so that, that, that's going to be a big barrier to institutions writ large keeping up. Yeah, fantastic insight. Uh, well, Michael, we're, we're almost uh, at the end of our time. But the last question I want to leave you with is, you know, one of the things a lot of people talk about with, with COVID, there's, you know, all these changes that are happening. Uh, and I think some of these will be permanent and some of them will go back. Uh, like you alluded to before. Uh, so tell us about in, in the education space, what are the things that you feel are like are the fads and where are we going to see the permanent change? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I'm wrestling with this, I think, still. I, my, and my sense is this, that out of all these crises in the past, um, there are durable, transformative things that that come through and come through stronger and grow. And I think that's what it'll be here that at, at the, you know, there's going to be plenty of students that flock back to campuses or, you know, in the world of K-12, K-12 schools or whatever, the moment that the doors are open and they feel comfortable, right? And there is a significant percentage of individuals who have had a really good experience, who've opened up avenues that they didn't know existed before and are not going to go back to the ivy colored walls, right? Like they want these new opportunities. And uh, so I, I, I think it's sort of a one of nuance where you're, you're going to see, you know, out of this, there's probably some retrenchment of the alternative education sector that there's probably some, you know, decline in demand at some point. But that correction probably still puts it, you know, 50% above the starting point or something like that, right? And then it grows from that base. And, and I think that'll be durable and lasting and have significant impact. Uh, at the same time, you know, uh, just because college is down 13%, uh, you know, first year enrollment this year doesn't mean that some of those students won't come back. I think many of them will but there is going to be an enduring soft spot that is created and lasts into the demographic challenges coming down the pipeline of, you know, starting in 2025, 26, um, that I think is going to profoundly change student behavior and the questions students and employers ask. And, and uh, I expect that to persist. Last thing, I think a lot of people have hated the experience with technology. You know, you, you know, teaching on, on different platforms quite well. Um, I, I do think that there will be a bit of a backlash in certain quarters, but I think there's a whole host of people who've said, oh, gee, I can do that now. I, like, I, I'm not leaving that behind and who are asking questions that they didn't ask before. So I'm hopeful that at the margins, it leads to better learning experiences because frankly, a lot of the experiences couldn't get much worse than they were. <laughs> uh, and so if we take steps forward, 
front, I think that'll be a positive because we, we actually have a huge body of science about how to do about how to teach and learn better than we do. And we, we literally don't follow it. And, and that's been a crime. And, and I think we might shift some of that. Yeah, absolutely. One, one of my, uh, favorite uh, things that I've heard during this pandemic is that once uh, teachers figure out remote learning, uh, kids will never have a snow day again, which is <laughs> quite the tragedy. Yes. <laughs> uh, with that, Michael, thanks so much for coming out. I really appreciate it. Are there any last minute plugs you want to give in terms of how people can keep up with you on social media, learn more about your books, um, et cetera? I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that, Ish. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at Michael B. Horn. My website's michaelbhorn.com. Uh, and you can send me notes uh, through that. Keep up uh, with the latest. I, I, I write a newsletter on Substack, uh, Future of Education. Just look up Michael B. Horn. And uh, you can follow me in those ways. And, and, and that's probably uh, pr pretty good. But, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, I'm all out there as well, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't recommend the Future You podcast enough. It is fantastic. If you've not heard it, go check it out. Thank you. Uh, with that, Michael, thanks so much for coming on. This was an absolute blast. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ish. And that was Michael B. Horn. If you're interested in keeping up with Michael B. Horn, go on over to his website, michaelbhorn.com. And if you're an entrepreneur who wants to start their own education business, check out what we're building at Virtually. You can go on over to tryvirtually.com and start building your own micro school. Lastly, if you enjoyed the episode, we'd really appreciate a favorite or a review on your favorite podcast player. It really helps get the word out. With that, this is Ish signing off.